that on page 924 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. And this morning we're going to be looking at verse 36, and we're going to be reading through verse 5 of chapter 16. So Acts 15, starting verse 36, and reading through verse 5 of chapter 16. I may have told some of you this story before, but almost about five years to the day, I was standing in a train station in East Asia with a group of friends, and it was an impressive building. We had seen it uh, from around the city before, but we were finally in it. Uh, we were getting ready to travel um, to uh, an ancient garden that was west of the city, and we were all looking forward to a little bit of adventure. We had been uh, working really hard uh, for the pat the two weeks before that, and then we were just kind of taking a break together and just going to enjoy um, a little bit of time together. Now, not everyone in our group was going on the train with us. A few of our fellow travelers were headed back home uh, before the rest of us. And with time to burn, they decided to come to the airport, before they had to get to the airport, they decided to come with us to the station to say goodbye. Now, moments like that are never easy. You're all Midwesterners. You know how to draw out a farewell. And we do the same thing in the South. This, this goodbye, though, was, it, was, it was particularly hard because even though we were all scheduled to head back to the States, one of our friends in particular was not traveling back to the same city. They were not going back to Louisville with us. He was headed to Washington, D.C. to do an internship there. So we were excited for him, but we were also realized this was not just see you later. later. This, was, this was goodbye. So we lingered and we waited until it was very clear we had to go. And I very distinctly remembered at that moment Mark shaking my hand and always with this cheerful Canadian smile on his face saying, Brother, I'll see you in glory. And in that moment, I have to say, it shocked me because I was not expecting him to say that. Mark and I went to seminary together. We'd become really good friends. And in spite of the fact that our favorite teams were hard rivals with each other, we still managed to get along. Um, I, was, I, was, I was fully expecting to see him again in just a few months. But now, at that moment, I wasn't so sure. And at first, as I got on the train and thought about what he just said, it troubled me. I knew he was right, but I wasn't expecting him to say that. I didn't want that to be the last time I saw him before we saw each other again in heaven. But one thing was very clear. Our paths were going different ways. He was headed to Washington. I was headed into the Asian countryside and then back to Louisville. And only a few months, and, and I, only a few months later after that, I was here. And actually, so far, his words have proved true because I haven't seen him since we left that smoky train station. That, that moment has stayed with me for five years. It hurts to part ways with a friend, whether it's on good terms or bad terms even. But as believers, we have this promise in Christ that when we say goodbye, it is never the end for us. Even in farewell, there remains an eternal promise of life everlasting and a fellowship with God and his people that extends beyond time and space. And one day, we know and trust by faith, our paths will come back together in one place before the throne of God. And we will look back on the time that we spent apart. And not only will it seem brief, but we will know that it was worth it. And our souls will be satisfied as we behold the face of our Lord together. Christ's disciples must follow where he leads them. And what I hope to show you from this passage this morning 
is that when God takes us separate ways, it is always worth it. You can always trust him. And you can always trust that he is going to see things through, and that he has not left us without comfort in the midst of seasons of farewell. That is what I hope to bring to your attention this morning as we study Acts 15, starting verse 36 and reading through chapter 16, verse 5. Now let's begin by reading our text together. If you will, please stand, stand with me as I read. This is the word of the Lord. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So, the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, the Bible presents us with many heroes of the faith, men and women who are examples to us about what it means to love and obey God. But even so, in telling us about those who have come before us, the Holy Spirit has never once shied away from also telling us about their blemishes and failures. This is one of those moments, one of those moments that reminds us that men like Paul and Barnabas are, were as in much need of the grace of God as we ourselves are. This passage, if I may be quite frank, is hard. It's, it's hard to think that two men as godly as Paul and Barnabas, this dynamic duo, these friends who had been through so much together, could reach a moment like this where they separate ways from each other over a dispute. It's a moment which I'm sure tested the church because I have been through things like this and those times tested me and they tested the people around me. But even while this is a passage that should bring us a little grief, in the end, I think it's also a passage with a, a remarkable lesson for us about the supremacy of Christ and the unshakable purposes of God for his people. And that brings us to our main idea, which is simply this. No controversy or division will ever be able to overthrow God's purpose for his church. No controversy or division will ever be able to overthrow God's purpose for his church. Now, my confidence in saying that to you is taken from two important truths that we see communicated to us in this passage. 
You see, this tragic moment in the history of the church and in the fellowship of these two men teaches us two things. First, it teaches us to look always to Christ, who is the head of the church. And it teaches us to look to the grace of God, who time and time again works in unexpected ways to accomplish his perfect purposes. And those really are going to be our two points I want to bring for you this morning. Two actions we're called to do, which are meant to sustain us in the midst of every circumstance, even when we have to say goodbye to friends. So if you're looking at the sermon notes, you'll know we have two points. Always look to Christ and always look to the grace of God. Now, I always have three points, so I'm sure I'm throwing you for a lot for a loop. We only have two points this morning, but the second one's a trick because there's four points to that one. So there you go. I've warned you. First, we need to always look to Christ. People will disappoint you. They will disappoint you. I don't want to knock anyone's optimism off, but that is true. I remember in college I had a professor tell our class, never entrust yourselves to a theologian who's still alive. Now, he was half joking, half serious. What he meant to impress on us in that moment was that just because someone is respected, maybe even if they're a very capable theologian or pastor or influencer, that does not mean that they are not capable of great and terrible sins. People make mistakes. They say things that they shouldn't, or they fail to say things that they should. People fall into sin and disobedience. They don't always get their theology right. And it seems like the more someone is put in the limelight, the more of a target they become. We have watched as many great men of God and even women of God have done and said things that have really tarnished their witness. And it leaves a wake of destruction in in, in its path. As time has gone on, I have learned how much truth my professor's warning contained. Great men and women of the faith are in as much need of God's redeeming grace as the lowliest of us. We will never reach a point in this life where we are beyond correction or reproof or the need to be further sanctified in the image of Christ until Christ brings us in his glory to himself and perfects us fully, we will always be fighting with the flesh and its desires. It's part of the, the witness that we see that, that the Spirit is within us, that we are waging war on the flesh and its desires. That is why my professor all those years ago warned our class the way he did. He knew and he wanted us to know that if you build your faith on a mere person, however impressive that person may be, you are setting yourself up for failure because you're building your hope on the wrong foundation. Here at the end of Acts 15, Luke tells us about a time when Paul and Barnabas fell short. And while it doesn't end up affecting their trustworthiness or the trustworthiness of their message, it does show us that they were human. This is is one of the things that if it happened to you, you'd probably prefer to see it left out of the Bible. But the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record these things, not just to explain to us how Paul and Barnabas end up going their separate ways, but also, I think, to teach us to always keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
So here's what happened. In verse 36, Luke tells us that some days following Paul and Barnabas' return from Jerusalem back to Antioch in Syria, Paul came to Barnabas and said, let's, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. Even though he and Barnabas were uh, doing important work in the church of Antioch, they were thinking about all those churches that had been planted on their first journey through Cyprus and the region of Galatia. Paul is like a parent here, thinking about his child after they've gone off to college. He's, he longed for them. He wanted to make sure they were in good health. His heart was always for the church, as was Barnabas's. And so the two decide that it would be a good idea for them to go back and check on these churches to see how they're doing and to strengthen them in the faith. Now, Paul and Barnabas are clearly in agreement that this is a good idea. That's, though, when the trouble starts as they're preparing to actually go do this. You see, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, with them. Now, we've, we've met John Mark before. Mark had been with Paul and Barnabas on their journey initially. He was a young man. Uh, he was, had come up from Jerusalem and had traveled with them through Cyprus. Uh, he's actually Barnabas' cousin, um, but he had actually, when they had made their way through Cyprus, were told he had returned to Jerusalem after Paul and Barnabas had pressed on into the mainland. While they went on into the cities of Galatia, he had gone home to Jerusalem. We don't know why he left. Uh, scholars love to debate about what could have been the possibility. We don't know. Uh, but one way or another, uh, he had gone home. And that decision did not sit well with Paul. And this is where the conflict between Paul and Barnabas starts. Paul did not want to take Mark with him. The purpose of this trip was to check on the saints in all the cities of Galatia and Cyprus where he and Barnabas had been. It's not clear to me why Paul thought Mark was going to be a liability to that, but Luke clearly explains to us that the reason, uh, the reason Paul didn't want Mark to go was because of the way he had withdrawn from them and the fact that he had not gone up to do the work the work of the gospel in those cities. Now, perhaps Paul was worried Mark, Mark, Mark might repeat what he had done last time. Maybe he was worried that Mark would abandon them when things got tough and that would end up hindering the faith of the believers in the cities. Perhaps he was concerned about Mark's maturity at this point or whether or not he would be an encouragement to the churches or actually a problem for them. I don't think that he's concerned about the fact that Mark was unknown to these churches. After all, Paul ends up taking Silas with him, who was otherwise unknown to the churches. But one way or another, Luke makes it clear Paul did not think it was wise to have Mark in their company for this journey. And Barnabas, on the other hand, was willing to give Mark a second chance. In fact, he was insistent that they take Mark with them. Now, this shouldn't surprise any of us with everything we've seen about Barnabas's character uh, in the book of Acts. Remember, Barnabas is not, that's not actually his real name. His, it's actually, Barnabas is a nickname that means the son of encouragement. It, it describes Barnabas's character to a T. Barnabas is the kind of guy who would take great risks for other people. He was the one who had gone and gotten Paul after his conversion and brought him to the apostles when everyone else was afraid that it was a trap. Barnabas was the guy who had gone then later on and sought Paul out to serve as a pastor with him in Antioch after he'd been run out of Jerusalem the first time. And apparently, Barnabas was also the kind of guy who was willing to move past Mark's abandonment of them to give him a second chance even when Paul was opposed to the idea. 
Now, we could argue back and forth about who's right here. I think Paul probably has a point in not wanting to risk the welfare of the churches they're going to check on by bringing Mark with them. But I also think Barnabas is just practicing real charity here by wanting to take him on this with them in this party. So who's right? Well, I'll let you decide. I have no idea. One way or another, Luke explains to us that neither Paul nor Barnabas were able to come to an agreement on this issue. In fact, in verse 39, Luke says that a sharp disagreement arose between them, so sharp, in fact, that they ended up separating from each other. Barnabas, we see, takes Mark with him. The two sail together to Cyprus, and Paul... We, in, in Barnabas's absence, chooses Silas, one of those two men who had come up being sent by the council in Jerusalem to be a, one of the witnesses about their decision that the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised or submit to the law of Moses in order to be saved. Now, how he managed to get Silas, Luke doesn't tell us because he's already told us that Silas had traveled back to Jerusalem with Barsabbas, who was that other witness who had been chosen by the council. So at some point, Paul has gone down to Jerusalem to get Silas, and then they go up together. They travel north by land through Syria and Cilicia until they come to Derbe in Lystra. So while Barnabas and Mark go by sea to the west to Cyprus, it looks like Paul and Silas stay more or less on land, traveling northwest through the mountains of Tarsus. Now, I don't know about you, but this has got to be one of the most dissatisfying moments in the whole book of Acts. Paul, Paul and Barnabas were best friends. They were partners together in the faith. These guys, they are absolute titans. They were valiant soldiers of Christ, men who were willing to risk anything for the sake of the gospel. They had dedicated their lives to the purpose of making the glory of King Jesus known. They had been preaching a gospel of grace all over the place. They had given up safety and security and comfort all for this message, embracing risk and ridicule. And God used both of these men in tremendous ways for the good of the church. What's more, they're coming off of a huge victory for the truth. They've just returned back from Jerusalem after defending the gospel of grace from those who were trying to add works to it, and they did that together. I mean, this is like a pinnacle moment. You would expect that these are, this is like a duo that is unstoppable, but now they're headed in opposite directions. The, the fellowship is broken up. And all because they couldn't agree whether or not it was wise to bring John Mark with them. I mean, what an absolute gut punch. This is, this is terrible. Now, Luke doesn't give us all the ins and outs of the argument. This is, this is so uncharacteristic of both of them. I mean, think about what on... I am inclined to think that Paul said something to Barnabas that just really rift, made a huge rift in their relationship. I don't know that. But what do you say to the son of encouragement that makes him walk away from you? I mean, honestly, it is just strange to think that the son of encouragement could get into a hot enough argument with his best friend so that they separated and went opposite ways. But it happened. And we, we mourn as we see the two of them head in different directions. Was it, was it right for Paul and Barnabas to argue like this? Well, it's hard to say. I think they both have valid points. 
Was it right for them to separate on terms like this? No. No, I don't think so. Do we see something about Paul and Barnabas' humanity in the midst of this? Yes, I think we do. And as we see that together, there's, there's just a point that needs to be made here. That Paul and Barnabas, although they were giants in the faith, were still sinners who messed up sometimes. And as tragic as this moment is, we need to recognize that the success of the church and the purpose that God had for the church was not undermined by that reality. That's because the success of the kingdom of God belongs to King Jesus. He is the head of the church. He is the one who was crucified for our sins. He is the one who was buried. He is the one who rose in victory. He is the one who has received all authority and reigns even now at the right hand of the Father. He is the author and the perfecter of the faith. Our hope is not in apostles. It is not in the saints who have come before us, even though they do play an important role in being witnesses to us about these things. Our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. Consider what Paul himself says in, to, in 1 Corinthians to a church that was becoming divided from itself, that was actually using his own name as a label in the midst of that division. Paul asked them, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No! What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You see how Paul in that letter is directing people's eyes to, to Christ? That this is God saving you through King Jesus? Don't call yourself by my name. It's about Christ. The point is this. Your heroes in the faith are bound to disappoint you. They will disappoint you even. Parents sin. Pastors fail. Theologians get wrapped around logical arguments and deny plain truths. Institutions become tarnished and corrupt. But Christ, Christ does not. And he has declared that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In the past few years, there's been a lot to rejoice about in the church. And there's been a lot to grieve about. We saw a lot of division rear its ugly head in the church, especially in 2020 with COVID. Really, I think what we saw was that that exposed a lot of issues that were already there. It just gave an excuse to rip that off, and suddenly we saw how divided we had become. You might be tempted to think the church is lost. You might be tempted to write it off, but I, let me tell you, you couldn't be more wrong. The power of Christ is greater than the weakness of the church. Sometimes God allows us to fail and falter so that we will learn to cling by faith to him. The power of the cross of Christ is as strong today as it has ever been, and it is bearing fruit. 
So look to Christ, brothers and sisters. He does not fail. He does not falter. And the success of the church is on him. When all other heroes fail, he does not. When you fail, he does not. His grace is sufficient for me, for me, and his grace is sufficient for you. And his grace will ensure that his purposes for his people will stand. He will see us through. And to make that point to you, we need to shift now to look at the grace of God which we see in Christ. So our second point here. Now, despite the fact that Paul and Barnabas separated from each other and went in opposite ways, God's purpose for the church did not fail. In fact, as regrettable as it is for us to see the separation come between two beloved brothers, as we continue reading, we actually find God working even in the midst of this tragedy to strengthen and build the church up in the power of Christ. It's, it's as I read this, it the, the other, another passage that comes to mind is in the book of Genesis with Joseph as he's meeting with his brothers. What they did to him, they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And now God had brought him to a position of power to save them. And as, as they come to Egypt, they are so afraid that he's going to take it out on them. And he says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, Paul and Barnabas, did they have good purposes in what they did? Sure, I think they had good motives. Did they do the right thing? No, I don't think they did. And yet at the same time, we see God working the failing of these two brothers for the good of his people, to continue the work to glorify Christ in spite of their weakness. So in the time I have left, what I want to do is I want to highlight some of the ways that we see God's grace triumphing in spite of Paul and Barnabas's weaknesses. First, and this is... So there's going to be four of these, so just be prepared. First, we see an expansion of the mission here. Paul and Barnabas don't become rivals with each other even as they, be, they, they go in different directions. So while it's heartbreaking to see these two men separate, it is still so encouraging to see how God redeemed this situation and even used it for great good. Let me draw those things out for you. First, consider where we had, whereas we had just one team going out to encourage the church, now we have two. The, the, the mission has expanded, not the way we wanted it to, but it's expanding. Barnabas and Mark are headed to Cyprus. Paul and Silas are going overland through Syria and Cilicia to the city of Derbe and then on to Lystra. The second part of verse 40 here is really striking to me. Luke says that the brothers in the church commended Paul and Silas to the grace of the Lord. What that tells me is that despite the conflict between Paul and Barnabas, the church was still involved in shepherding these brothers and sending them out. The fellowship of the body was not disrupted. Second, consider how God protected the unity of the church even as Paul and Barnabas were separated from each other. It's an unfortunate reality that when conflict happens between leaders such that they split like this, they are typically accompanied within, with splits happening in the church. That doesn't happen here. Instead, we see that God graciously preserved the church from becoming divided and distracted. That, that is not a small thing. This mission looks different than the previous one, but the hand of God is clearly at work in spite of the conflict. Third, we see God using this split to occasion the training of two young men 
for ministry. Now, this whole conflict started as a dispute about whether or not to bring the young man Mark with them on the trip. It's impossible for us to get into the head of Barnabas to know why he was so determined to bring Mark with him, but we do know that in the end it made a huge impact. Years later, towards the end of Paul's life, we find him writing to Timothy, saying to him, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me for ministry. Okay, that's a big change. Something had clearly changed between the moment in Acts 15 when Paul and Barnabas split from each other over this issue and this, now this moment when Paul writes a letter to Timothy and says, bring Mark, I need him. In fact, we find Mark showing up in a number of different places, not only in Paul's letters but also in Peter, all of which commend him as a faithful worker for the gospel. I have to believe that that change came in part because of Barnabas' commitment to him. By the grace of God, Mark grew into a useful worker for the gospel. Whatever Paul found objectionable in him was no more, and that happened because of the transforming work of the grace of God and the commitment of people like Barnabas pouring into him. Meanwhile, we're introduced by Luke to another young man named Timothy. Timothy was from Lystra. His father was a Greek. In Lystra, the ruling class was Roman and Greek. So the fact that we're told his mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek, tells us that Timothy was probably from somewhat of an influential family. In verse 2, Luke says that Timothy was well spoken of by the believers at Lystra and Iconium. So he was well known, not just in the church that he was at, but also in churches across, across Galatia. Although Paul may have been resolute not to have Mark accompany with him, he does decide that Timothy should. And we, although we, we don't know very much about Timothy's father, we know he was a Greek, um, and it doesn't appear that he was a believer. So Luke indicates that despite his mother being Jewish, Timothy had not been circumcised. Now, this is not terribly related to our main idea here, but I think it needs to be talked about because it, it does relate to what we've studied in Acts 15. Paul, we see, ends up taking Timothy under his wing. Uh, he becomes a father in the faith to him. He trains him, uh, and he, he teaches him, and prepares him for ministry. He does what Timothy's father hadn't done. In verse 3, we're told that Paul actually takes Timothy and circumcises him. Kind of a strange thing for Paul to do, considering that how he and Barnabas had just finished arguing in Jerusalem that circumcision shouldn't be necessary for salvation. But it's it is an issue that needed to be addressed. People were aware that Timothy's father was a Greek. And by having Timothy circumcised, we see that Paul is actually, he's removing a barrier to the Jews that would otherwise keep them from hearing the gospel. If Timothy was going to accompany Paul, considering his mother's ethnicity, this needed to be done. It did not count for anything concerning Timothy's salvation, but it did put him in a better position to reach certain people with the gospel of grace. So I understand Paul's action here in light of what uh, we read in 1 Corinthians 9, which Brad read for us earlier, where he says, To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, 
that I might win those under the law. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So let me ask you, what do you think would have happened if Paul and Barnabas had stuck around together, if they'd stayed? I I don't know. Kind of one of those things, question to bat around to each other. What I do know is that God worked in the midst of this to raise up two young men to become faithful ministers in the church. And he did this even as Paul and Barnabas separated from each other. That's amazing. The fourth way that we see God's grace working in the midst of the separation is the way that the church was strengthened in the faith and in the way that it grew. Luke actually says this twice in our passage. He's already said it once in verse 41, and he says it again in verse 5. As regrettable as Paul and Barnabas' separation was, Luke makes it very clear that it did not upset God's purpose for the church. In fact, it seems that whatever motives were in Paul and Barnabas' hearts as they went separate ways, God meant it and used it for good. We can attribute that to the way that God had now included Silas and Timothy into the mix. And in verse 4, Luke says that as they went on their way through the cities, Paul and Silas delivered to them the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. So they continued on their way. They were clarifying the gospel. They were instructing people in how to live in harmony with each other as they went. And as they did, we see that the church grew in the truth. They grew in grace, and they grew in the strength of their faith. And not only that, they also grew in numbers daily. So clearly, God was at work in the church despite what had happened between Paul and Barnabas. So where does all this leave us? Well, it leaves us calm and confident in the grace of God under the headship of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many things in church history that need to be critiqued. There are many heroes of the faith whose weaknesses are glaring and visible. There are things in our own lives that we wish were not there. Does this discredit the gospel of grace? No, it does not. Neither does it diminish the power of the grace and the glory of God. Remember, God loved us even while we were still sinners, and he sent his son his beloved son, to die for us, to atone for our sin, to restore us to himself, and to make us pure. The glory of the gospel is in how God takes that which is unclean and makes it clean and glorious. We are all still being sanctified. Even the most seasoned, mature believer among us is still in the process of being formed and fashioned more in the image of Christ. We're not here because we claim to be perfect. We're here because we have put our hope in Jesus Christ, who is, and and who took our sin upon himself so that by faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We're here because the grace of God has drawn us here together and because God has chosen to involve us in each other's lives, to press and to shape and to mold each other to be more like Christ. We're here because Jesus has said he will build his church, and we're here because he stands as our victorious king. 
There are so many regrettable things out there, things in the church, things in our own lives, things in each other's lives, but none of that can overthrow God's purpose and plan of grace. So as we press on towards the prize that is set before us, let us keep our eyes fixed on Christ and let us commend ourselves and one another to his great grace. Let's pray. Lord, your word is perfect. What you have included here is meant to be instructive for us. And Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive that instruction this morning. Lord, it's easy when people offend us to want to separate from them, want to divide, want to go our own way and start something new. You've called us to unity. You've called us to truth. You've called us to long-suffering. You have called us to redemption. And Lord, this morning, I plead with you to bind our hearts together in the unity of grace, to behold the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, to trust him with full hearts, to love one another as you have called us to love, to serve one another, to bear with each other and to press one another forward after the prize that is set before us in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with joy. I pray that you would fill us with hope and a knowledge of eternal life and that you will continue to work in us to make us more and more like Christ each and every day. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.